0: All right, shoot, let's do this. On the line, I got Jason Mishira and Chris Carlin from Upper Deck. Guys, you've re-upped the exclusive with the NHL and the NHLPA. You've made hockey cards really since the early 90s. With this deal, what's new and different compared uh, to the past deals you've had uh, with the NHL?
1: Uh, Honestly, I don't know that there's really anything new and different. It's it's more of a continuation of what we've been able to do over the last uh, several years, which, quite frankly, is heavily promoted to the category, I- invest uh, both on the digital front and at
2: brick-and-mortar stores, and just spread the good word of trading card collecting uh, across the world. Uh, to that point as well, I think um, one thing in particular the NHL and NHLPA are very interested in our growth is growth outside of North America. So, Uh, We've invested quite a bit in having a bigger presence at events like the China Games uh, at the NHL Global Series uh, and engaging with those fans not only in person but making it a point to make them aware of a platform like EPAC where they can, you know, uh, if you're in Brussels, there's not a a trading card shop on every corner. So uh, for us to have a platform like that where people can collect any time of the day, anywhere in the world, uh, meant a lot to the NHL and NHLPA in particular in terms of getting their products and their players' uh, visibility overseas.
0: What is the percentage? I, I mean, is, is there a percentage breakdown of, of collectors either in Canada, uh, United States, and overseas? Do you have a sense of what that is?
1: I mean, I think it it varies from year to year and rookie class to rookie class. You know, when you get a a player like the Patrick Mane, you know, all of a sudden you've got a lot more interest from Finland. Um, If you get uh, a player like Rasmus Dahlin, you get all of a sudden you get stuff from Sweden. The overwhelming majority is always going to be North America, um, but international can be anywhere from 10 to 20%
2: on a given year. And I think what's interesting is with ePAC, we finally are able to pull real data uh, with regard to where people are opening up packs. And we have people opening up packs in over 100, over 200 now? It's uh, 150 countries. Over 150 countries, and we even have uh, someone opening up hockey packs in Yemen, which was uh, <laughs> an eye-opening, uh, eye-opening insight. So, uh, the, again, the presence that we get with that platform is really been good.
0: Yeah, it's pretty incredible. I've talked a lot about EPAC on the show, and uh, we'll get we'll get into EPAC here in a, in a little bit, both the pros and cons of it. I know you guys get killed by by dealers about it, but we'll get into that in a little bit. How how long does this new NHL uh, deal run? Uh,
1: well, we don't typically get into the, the terms of the contract.
0: In fact, we can't.
2: Does, uh, well, what we can say is uh, multi multi year.
0: Multi year. Does the lockout? I, I was reading something today. Even even a. Uh, uh, a shop owner sent me an email about a potential lockout with, with the NHL and the NHLPA. Does that affect you guys? I mean, that would affect you, but but that did that affect you guys when you were making this, this new deal? Uh,
1: no, I mean, look, anytime you go into a deal with any of the sports leagues, you have to be prepared for a, a labor stoppage. I think um, all of us have been fairly blessed over the last several years that there haven't been um, more. Um, I think, uh, hockey and basketball, I think would the last two, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it, it hurts any of
2: us, any of the manufacturers when you have a labor stoppage. And not just that, it's not just the trading card industry, it's apparel, it's all sorts of licensed goods. So it, it affects okay. everything across the board. So yeah, we, uh, we definitely keep our fingers crossed with regard to that.
0: Did Topps or Panini or anybody else make an offer to the NHL?
1: It was an open bidding process.
0: But you don't know if if one of the other companies made a bid?
1: Uh, As far as we know, uh, all the major companies were part of the process.
0: Do they they pin you against each other? Do they say, hey, Panini's offering X amount, now you have to come up and offer this? Do they kind of put you against each other?
1: Uh, No, I mean, all that stuff is confidential, but what the reality is is when you have multiple people putting plans and offers together, they, you know, their job is to to maximize the value for the owners. And I think you guys have talked about that before.
0: Right. Right, right, for sure. Yeah, it's definitely the money flows right up to the ownership in all these leagues. Uh why do they only Here's a question. Why do they only offer one license? I mean, you guys are set up at the sports licensing show in Vegas every year. I went last year. Uh Panini's there. I mean, it's like the national, the rooms filled with anything and everything sports license. I even went by the NBA table. They had this huge, uh, like four pages of all the licenses they have of all the different products. You go to trading cards, there's one name. And and I mean, you do that across all sports, hockey, baseball, basketball, football. Why is that? Why 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 have they chosen to do that?
1: Well, I, I think every licensor would probably give you different answers based on, on their business. I think one of the trends that you've seen In sports licensing in general is that in a lot of the categories they've gone down to one licensee Um, But that trend changes over time. I mean, you know, if you look at the NFL they had an exclusive licensee for apparel and uh, The last bid process they they broke it into six categories uh, And gave out multiple licenses across different different uh, manufacturers. So Every licensor has different reasons and, and different things at any given time. I think the the move to a lot more exclusives across categories, in, in many cases, was just uh, a workload standpoint, right? Every every licensee that you have creates more work for the licensors. I would guess that's the the main reason. But you know, again, everyone has a different
0: reason. How many sets are in the? new deal how many sets can you make per year
1: well we have the flexibility on any given year um, to determine that and i think what really separates us as a manufacturer is we really try to produce what we think the market will bear Um, so we change that if you look it it changes any given year Uh, i believe this year we're doing 18 total sets uh, for 2018-2019 you know, if we get a hot rookie, we may bump it up a couple. Um, it just—it's it, a—it's kind of a mutual planning process on a on a year-to-year basis.
0: And is that a decision that just you guys make, as an upper deck makes, or is that a collaborative decision with the NHL? Too? Like, can they mandate? I mean, is there a minimum that you have to make? I mean, can you just make one set if you wanted to? Well, I
1: think the nice part about the relationship that we have with the NHL and the NHLPA is. You know, we submit a plan to them on a yearly basis of what we think the market will look like and the sets that we want to produce, and it's truly a collaborative effort. There is no mandate in this relationship, which is nice. Everybody that's involved is trying to do
2: the right things for the market. Yeah, I think to that point, the, the NHL and NHLPA really do their due diligence in this process by talking to shops, by listening to feedback from collectors, by uh, getting honest feedback from distributors with regard to uh, just the overall products, how strong these brands are, do each of them have a reason for being, and uh, they've done a great job with that. But with regard to the collaboration that occurs, it's not just with the NHL and NHLPA. We, uh, just last week, we had uh, some of our top shops and some of our distributors at a, at a private event, not the CDD conference, it's a different one. Uh, just going through the calendar, not just for this year, but for next year, and even talking about the year after that, uh, to get ahead of planning and to be able to prepare and share those plans with the NHL and NHLPA for their feedback.
0: Do you hear often from dealers and collectors that there are too many products or they feel like there's too many?
1: Um, you know, we don't anymore. And I, I think part of that is is that we drastically put out less sets than the other sports. In fact, we get a little pushback that they'd like to see a couple new brands um, and experimental brands on a yearly basis um, just to have something new and fresh in the calendar. Um, but we, we don't get a lot of pushback on too many
2: brands. know I'm I'm uh, in the weeds with regard to social and what everyone's saying on the message boards, and, and I, I do hear that from time to time with regard to, I, I don't know if I, I need this or what have you, but a lot of that comes from the type of collector that, that thinks they need to collect everything. What Really, what we're trying to do is understand that it's different strokes for different folks out there. Uh, everyone needs a product that they can kind of get behind and, uh, and enjoy. Uh, there are some that want to try to collect everything, which, you know, or they have a personal collection. They're like, oh my gosh, now I've got to add five different other rookies to uh, to my set uh, to be complete. So I, I hear a little bit about about that, but uh, yeah, not to the extent that I've seen on, on some of the other uh, brands or
0: manufacturers. Okay, so that's interesting. There's there's many different type of, of collectors. Uh, you know, you guys know that really well. Who's who's the most important then to your business? Is it the new collect? When I worked at I worked at long time ago. I worked at Verizon, the cell phone company, and a big metric for them is is the churn percentage, how many customers they're losing. So they're all just trying to get people in the door get a subscription and lock them in because you know you're going to lose a certain percentage. Is your guys' business focused on getting new customers? Is that who your main customer is or best customer? Is it the older customers or is it the set collectors? Who is it that that you guys are are targeting? Uh,
1: I mean, I I think the the answer to that is all of the above. Um, Really, if you look And again, Chris mentioned, you know, how we put our calendar together. We really try to have sets that appeal to different collector bases. Um, You know, we spent the last week at the CDD conference talking about families and collecting. Um, I think the heaviest emphasis we put on are collecting-based sets and making sure that people are still trying to complete sets and trying to, um, enjoy the art of collecting, which is why UD1 and UD2 are so important on a yearly basis. Uh, but we have other collector-based sets. But you know, within 18 brands, you have the the ability to create some sets for um, the higher-end collector, the set-based collector, the rookie card-driven guy. Um, they are all you know important uh, across. You know, demographics and and collector bases. Chris, I don't know if you have... Yeah,
2: and this is one of the things that Jason challenged me to do this year. I'm still doing a lot of our marketing and PR, but um, I'm now uh, running our customer engagement, and Ryan, you know, you see this every day. Uh, Every collector is different, and uh, it is a monumental task to try to put together marketing plans to hit every demographic and every type of customer, because uh the way you market to one customer is gonna upset another customer and it's uh it's a real real challenge. But one thing that uh that I've tried to put into place is uh much better engagement with fans, uh having uh at Upper Deck Assists on Twitter so people you know who are upset on Twitter can get right out to someone and get a response and uh really coaching up our staff and uh doing programs like Upper Deck Random Act the kindness so uh, our collector base feels appreciated. Uh, There's a multitude of things that we do to try to engage every type of fan, but uh, but it is a monumental task. The, the biggest things I think for us with regard to uh, marketing and advertising, uh, our kids. I, I find that with National Hockey Card Day, we've been doing that program for over 10 years now. So much to the extent, and we spend so much time on that that when we have our annual rookie showcase we're bringing in some of the the top uh, NHL draft picks, many of them will say that, oh, yeah, I got started because of National Hockey Card Day, which is incredible. So to hear that just uh, reaffirms that all the the little marketing promotions that you do throughout the course of the year, all the events, they really do pay dividends in the long run with regard to uh, getting people into the hobby. And uh, uh, that's something that I think Jason's done a tremendous job of is the category used to not... It was almost an afterthought for a while, and uh, he put a lot of effort into raising the visibility for it. So uh, whether there be promotions like Tim Hortons in Canada, where you have hockey cards in uh, hundreds of restaurants, or thousands of restaurants throughout Canada, uh, you've got athletes doing commercials about hockey cards, you've got Sidney Crosby and Nathan McKinnon on TV at Ad nauseum talking about hockey cards, we've got... Uh, an outlet like Canadian Tire, uh, doing hockey cards, and, and much more to come. So uh, for us, it's been raising the visibility for the category and, and telling uh, great stories about uh, how fun the hobby can be.
0: What's the, you know, it, to the kid's point, what's the lowest price you could make a pack of cards, maybe like five cards per pack? What's the lowest price you could theoretically make that and and and, and make a profit or or at least market it?
1: Well, you know, we have – I would say there's, there's two answers to that. There's the free pack that we give away for National Hockey Card Day every year. And that's then, that has a significant cost for us, yeah. And then uh, uh, MVP has a, a SKU that's $0.99. Cents, and then we actually do some other SKUs of, like, Upper Deck Series 1 and Series 2 that you can find in some of the dollar channels at $0.99 cents as well. But at the same point, those –
2: those don't turn a profit for us. So those those are lose money. That Is that what you said? Because we want, yeah, we're not making profit. You're not. We're not running to the bank on that. <laughs> it's it's important for us to have that type of product out there to have something on the shelf for that entry level fan, that entry level collector, uh, and the kids. You know. What and about?
0: Go ahead. What about at scale, though? Because I'm I'm sure at these dollar stores they're not selling a lot of packs. What if it became really popular? If you sold them worldwide, what if it? What if you were selling like lots of packs per day? At even though it was a dollar at scale, do you? Is it still not like? Is it just not profitable to make a one dollar pack of cards? Well,
2: I think that's uh, that's a model that we're not totally interested in because we're we want to make a collectible, right? And I think that uh at some point if you're going to mass produce these items, the the market is very sensitive to that. And when you produce too much, people find out about it very quickly and uh heck, our two thousand one golf is a great example of that. You know, when uh, we we had we had distribution all over the place, all over the world that wanted this product, but uh when the hobby realized how much was out there, it ceased to be a collectible, didn't it? So uh we are very sensitive to that and uh and it's just not a model that we have much interest in, in going at.
0: Okay. So it's really hard. You know, I was reading an article the other day uh, about the Panini soccer stickers, the world cup ones, the, uh, an employee from Panini, the global company estimated that 1.5 million people actively collect the soccer stickers. Do you have a sense of how many active hockey collectors there are?
1: No, I, w- I wish we did. Honestly, um, you know, that that thing is a global phenomenon, and they and they should be be proud of it. You know, we we'd like to think we, we have the same thing um, with hockey fans. We you know we know there's a millions and millions of hockey fans across the globe. We know a good percentage of them collect, but it's really hard to pinpoint that number and, and really put an estimate against it.
0: You guys have made, you know, been involved in the hobby a long time, and, and across all the sports, not just hockey. Is the Canadian collector different than the American sports collector? Like, are there differences between the two countries?
1: Um, you know, I think I don't know if it's really across countries. I would say it's across sports. I think you see some similarities between the hockey collector and the baseball collector. Um, and the same with the football collector and the basketball collector, um, the the hockey collector, and it, again, it really doesn't matter whether it's Canadian or American. They tend to be more of the old school set completionists or player collectors. Um, whereas the the football collector and the ba- the basketball collector are more of the high end hit guys. Um, so that's where we kind of see the comparisons and the the uh, differences between between collectors.
2: Yeah, and I wouldn't say it's uh Canadian American, I would say it's cold weather versus warm weather. <laughs> and what okay. we really see is in cold weather markets that uh that our products do very well because collecting cards is a it's an indoor hobby, right? So if you're snowed in, um, you're probably gonna have interest in playing board games and checking out your hockey card collection. And uh if you're in Southern California and it's sunny, then uh you're gonna be out and about a lot more and uh,
0: doing outdoor things. Let's uh, let's go to EPAC. It's, it's a favorite thing to me to discuss on this show. I, I've spent. I actually added it up before the show. I've spent two thousand eighty four dollars on EPAC. I've made over three thousand trades uh, with collectors. Before we get into this pack wars thing that you guys have put on there, it's kind of unique. Dealers and and distributors beat you guys up. Over this, or at least they have in the past, brick and mortar uh, and distributors. I've seen posts on Universal Distribution, a big Canada uh, sports card distributor, telling shops that they need to resist this. Uh, dealers, in my opinion, and distributors are holding this technology back. I think you guys are holding each other back. Here's an example of this Jason, you did an interview uh, for Digital Card Central. This is back in September 2016. Upper Deck does not advertise the EPAC platform in any of our physical releases. We do not advertise the EPAC platform at hobby-focused shows like the National Sports Collector's Convention or the Sports Card Memorabilia Expos. You guys are both smart guys. The University of San Diego, I think, is close to where you guys are. The marketing team there would not tell you to market the EPAC platform in, in this way. I've never collected hockey cards. Well, I've been a hobby a long time, never collected hockey cards before until EPAC. I'm a hundred times, I'm infinity times more to go into a card shop now or go to a card show now and spend money on hockey cards because I got exposed of it through EPAC. Do shops? It's been, EPAC's been around for a couple, you can tell it's a passionate topic for me. Do, do shops tell you that they've lost business because of EPAC? It's been around for a couple years so they, they probably can evaluate it. Or is that what they're telling you?
1: Uh, I think it depends on the shop uh, and how realistic and if they're asking the right questions. Um, we do have shops that say, yeah, we've lost guys to, to EPAC, but the majority have seen an influx of traffic from new collectors that we've been able to market to because eventually a lot of the EPAC collectors do graduate to some of the hobby exclusive products that aren't available on EPAC and a lot of times what we'll see is they'll they'll walk in the door and many times they don't even know that they came from EPAC unless they asked the right question so they're not seeing it they're not they're not asking you know, how did you find out about my shop? Or how, you know, how do you know about this release? I've never seen you before. Um, I think there, there has been an influx of traffic from, from EPAC and the, the,
2: the, guys that are asking the right questions do know that. Yeah, and I think dealers and distributors felt about EPAC uh, the same way is it, it, totally reminiscent to me when eBay first came on this team. When eBay came out, it's, the sky is falling, we're all going to be bankrupt this is going to screw up everything and man i had some very very tenuous conversations with some really great shops over epac when it first launched and and now i think uh i think uh, shops understand uh at least that you know we're not trying to put them out of business that this is something that's uh that's good for the category that raises the visibility for it that allows uh fans who don't have shops uh nearby to get involved in the category and uh it's not. Uh, it's not a sky is falling type of affair. Is there?
0: I have a. I have a really weird suggestion. Oh, uh, almost to to these dealers. I just. I'm just trying to figure out a, to, a way to bridge the gap between these dealers' uh, resistance to EPAC. What if there was a way that you charged a tax to users who are within a certain range? of a certified diamond dealer, but they were using EPAC. And that tax then went to either that dealer or went to a certified diamond dealer fund. You see what I'm saying? So that there's an incentive for the dealer to push customers to EPAC. Like, that's what I think dealers should be doing somehow.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've talked about it. We've actually had some of the the really sharp shops have asked about, you know, an affiliate program, terminals in their shops. I mean, there are some really proactive, uh, forward-thinking guys. You know, the 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 issue, quite frankly, on our side is the model really doesn't just support you know being able to cut in dealers, distributors into that model. You know, and I think the perception, especially originally, was that upper is going to make all kinds of extra profit on here. The, the reality is, it's not true. I mean, we have a we have a pretty robust platform that we have to. Uh, finance and, and pay for, uh, you know, you see the site, you know, we're adding new features every day. Um, it, it, there isn't room to kind of add that level. I think what we have done is, and I think this is why we're getting less resistance on EPAC, is we're, we're making sure that all the channels are healthy. We're marketing to the different channels. And EPAC definitely plays this role in the hobby as a, Complete ecosystem, and that's really where we've kind of been
0: focused. I, I mean, I I'm in love with it. I mean, if if tops had it for baseball, if, if there was basketball, I mean, there would be people broke, divorced, and, and their credit rating would go tanked. I mean, I know it. for I know it for a hundred percent fact. I mean, I'm being a hundred percent dead serious, and I think I've said it multiple times on the show. Let's move. Let's move on from the dealer. Kind of squaff with EPAC. Let's talk about this new Pack Wars feature. One of you guys want to kind of describe this to me. Uh, I think maybe old school guys remember going to the hobby shops and, and playing Pack Wars, and and whoever you know had the highest book value card got to keep all the cards. How does it work on EPAC?
1: So on, on EPAC, uh, we wanted to create a, a new way essentially to open packs and, and to enjoy the site and. Yeah, we took the inspiration for the from the old school pack wars that we all knew and loved, whether it was with your friends or in the shop. Um, we, we had to adjust a, l- a little bit um, because, quite frankly, the uh, the stuff we do in the shop is um, it's a little different when you're doing it from a corporate standpoint than a couple of friends getting together and, and essentially right. playing your packs against each other. So the way you do it here is we have pack wars packs. Uh, the first release is Marvel Annual. Uh, each pack, you know, you, you open your pack and just like standard pack wars, there's different attributes on the cards. Uh, and then the computer essentially picks three attributes and you have to, de- you have to determine which cards you want to play for which attributes. You submit those cards. The person you're playing against or the, the computer submits their cards. And then across those three categories, it's a best of three. And whoever wins essentially gets a prize card. Uh, I think the thing that differs the most from the traditional pack wars that we all know is if you lose, you
2: get to keep
1: your cards from your pack. Um, So it's actually kind of cool. So, you know, the packs are 99 cents. You play your pack, you get to keep your pack, but if you win, you get a bonus card.
0: Right, it looks, uh, it's almost better than the original pack because, yeah, you could walk into a hobby shop back in the day, spend 30 bucks, and walk out with, you know, zero. So, you know, at least you're getting yeah, out yeah. of there and with what, something.
2: It's been fun to see the reaction this week that it launched and, uh, and and fans seem to definitely be enjoying it. But what's really cool is that it's uh, scalable and you could take it to uh, not just the entertainment category but to almost any of our, our properties that are available in the pack. So it's going to be fun to watch. Uh, fans experience that in the future as we bring it to more, uh, more products. Yeah, you're right, man. I, I remember playing
1: Pack Wars, and I'd pull an autograph of a player I really liked, but based on the category or whether you're going dollar value, all of a sudden you lose that card that you really wanted, and you're like begging the other person to get it back.
0: Oh, it's, it, I, those are some of my earliest memories in the card shop is just watching the older guys kind of battle it out on the, you know, the, the $1.89 upper deck packs and some of the XPX packs uh, on through the other was like one card, $5 a pack. I can't remember when that was, but I just remember watching these guys just battle it out and I was like, wow, this is like real life gambling. So here's, okay, so here's a, here's a question. Why not just run automated, you guys are familiar with group breaks. Why not just run automated group breaks on EPAC? I could just go through upper deck, boom, pick the Oilers that's price per team and then when it fills up the break just automatically breaks and cards get dumped into my account
1: yeah I mean we're just not ready to go there and and quite frankly um, you know we are the one company that has an authorized group breaker program to make sure we have the right guys uh, the reputable guys who are doing group breaks represent upper deck in in the proper fashion um, we do a lot to support those guys who are, are, are good. Um, we're, not, we're not ready to go there. We're, we're still busy supporting these guys. And, and I think the other part of that is, is part of the reason that people like group breaks is they like the personalities of the guys doing the group breaks. And I'm just not ready to put – to go hire a personality to be running group breaks, um, you know, seven days a week with these guys. These guys are talented. The good guys are really talented – They're really good at what they've done, and they've created a community. Uh, And right now, we're focused on supporting
0: those guys. So you would never just hire, like, uh, I mean, yeah, like you said, these group breakers are really popular, and it's in part because of their personality. So you would never just say, hey, I mean, because those guys break all the different brands. Well, hey, why don't you just come over here to Upper Deck and be on your live stream and just break Upper Deck all day as like a full-time Upper Deck breaker? You would never consider that or haven't considered that?
1: I wouldn't say never. I, I hesitate to ever say say the word never. Um, I, I think you know right now. You know, like I said, it's it's part of the overall ecosystem, and we view EPAC right now as a way to to reach new collectors, to create community for uh, collectors who don't have a local hobby shop. Because the reality is, is there's a lot of people that don't have a local hobby shop to go to. Um, or they they have a local hobby shop and they don't carry upper deck. Um, we have a few of those that, that exist, believe it or not. Um, and maybe there's shops that don't carry specific products like Marvel or Alien or Clerks. This is a way for them to get access to that product. It's not it's not a, a an ecosystem that is. to view it as you know how can we grow the overall category and right now we see a very specific fit for how we
0: position and how we utilize vpac okay we're getting near the end here i got uh, a couple last questions for you did you know that tops was being shopped for sale before the bloomberg article that came out last year this was about probably about this time last year that that came out
1: you know, we, we hear the same rumors that everybody else does. Uh, I wouldn't say that we have any other inside information that that goes beyond everybody else.
0: Why don't? Why wouldn't you guys buy tops? You almost did in in two thousand seven. Uh, is there any interest there?
1: Look, we're always uh, interested in having those conversations with people, um, whether it's tops, uh, panini. Um, anybody that that makes sense with our business so you know we're always open to those type of things
0: what about licensing i mean you guys have the hugest athletes in the sport what, what about licensing jordan and lebron to somebody who maybe has an nba license or, or something like that has as have you ever thought about that you know
1: i i think the, the reason the the spokesmen that we have are with us is because of our brand uh, they believe in the Upper Deck brand. They understand that we're the we're the most premium collectible company in the world. Uh, they're with us for a reason. It it doesn't make sense for us to license them out to another brand at that point. You know, Michael, LeBron, uh, Tiger, Gretzky, Simmons, McDavid, Serena, Why wow. These guys are all with us because of the Upper Deck brand. They don't want to be with anybody else. They don't want to be with anybody
0: else's logo. Yeah, it almost like cheapens the brand. Do, do you still have an MLBPA license? No, we do not. When, when did that expire? Uh,
1: it's probably eight years ago, roughly.
0: Okay, so you haven't had one actually for a long time.
1: Yeah, it's been a while.
0: Okay. What's the decision? You guys just wrapped up your CDC's conference. What's the decision to hold your own conference instead of to do the, do the traditional industry summit?
1: That is a great question. Uh, you know, we went to that Hawaii Trade Summit as, as you did, um, or the industry conference. And there's a couple of things that we walked away with as a team was one, it was really negative. Uh, it was about, beating each other up. Uh, It was about what was always wrong, what was going on. It it turned into a contest of everybody trying to outdo each other, uh, which didn't feel good. I mean, I, I didn't come out of that conference feeling good about the industry. And then the second piece of that was I didn't feel like the focus of that conference was right. You know, I had heard when I came from outside the industry, I'd heard all these glorious things about the Hawaii Trade Conference and how great it was. And when I went, I didn't really feel like it was that great. And if you're asking shops to close down their shop or to find staffing and take two days, three days a week to leave their shop, you better really spend some time figuring out how to educate them, make their business better, uh, give them tools that they can go back and employ in their shop to help them make money. It's hard to make money as a card shop. So we really wanted to break away and focus on how do we help the shops, how can we invest the shop, how can we give them tools, because in many cases these guys are – one or one man or one woman shops or it's a family and they don't have the time to go take a class on what, how does the new tax laws affect them? Um, Mm. how do I go in and, uh, do my Yelp page better than than what I'm doing now? How do I utilize Facebook to drive business? They don't have the time, in some cases, they don't have the resources to do that. So we really want to be able to focus on these shops, give them those tools, educate them, and really take a, a two and a half day conference and give them everything that they deserve to make their businesses thrive and be better.
0: Yeah, I've heard a lot of good uh, things about it. I know some group breakers that go. I know some shop owners that go. Actually, I don't know if I've ever heard anything bad about it. So i uh, heard a lot of good things about it. So I think you've made a wise decision there. Guys, we're uh, out of time. It's probably the sun shining out there in California. Time to hit the road and maybe beat the traffic, don't you say?
2: Yeah, i no, we going to work a few more.
0: Well, uh, hey, th- thanks, guys. And maybe uh, we'll do this again sometime.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Uh Enjoyed catching up, and we can definitely catch up again in the future. Appreciate yeah, thanks it so much, Ryan. We appreciate it.
0: Thanks, guys.